Comics. Movies. Music. Video games. Technology. Blu-ray. Television. This is the HHW LOD Podcast Network. You're listening to the Whedonverse Podcast. A retrospective, spoiler-free podcast where we discuss the movies, series, comics, and games created or inspired by Joss Whedon. With your hosts, Mr. Universe. Number Do the dance of joy. And the clairvoyant. Well, you're right about this being a bad idea. Also brought to you by the Tangent Bound Network. This episode, we'll discuss Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Season 1, Episode 1, Welcome to the Hellmouth, and Episode 2, The Harvest. Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Season 1, Episode 1, Welcome to the Hellmouth, written by Joss Whedon, directed by Charles Martin Smith, aired March 10th, 1997. Season 1, Episode 1, welcome back to the Whedonverse podcast for another week. I'm Mr. Universe, joined once again by the Clairvoyant. Hello. And we're going to discuss the first canon episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer today. Welcome to the Hellmouth. How are you today, Clairvoyant? I'm doing great. And this is a very uh, an interesting episode to touch upon because there's a lot of similarities with the pilot, which we did last episode. Yeah, a lot of similarities, but not identical. So we'll, we'll make sure to point out the differences. Uh, for example, the start of this episode, very similar uh, in concept to the pilot. You get the familiar opening shot of what was formerly Berryman High now Sunnydale High School. Uh, uh, actually, we start with this uh, this new segment that wasn't in the pilot. Uh, this uh, it was about fifty percent cool, fifty percent cheesy uh, of a bunch of clips, and over top there's a man re- reading the "In Every Generation There Is a Slayer." Then we cut to Sunnydale High School. Right, and I think I just left it up because I'm so used to it, uh, seeing it every week. But good catch. Uh, because people that aren't, don't watch the show every week or only listen to our podcast so they don't have to watch the show uh, would miss that. So thank you. That was a joke, by the way. <laughs> so one thing I noticed uh, in the beginning of this episode, instead of creepy piano music as we penned over and inside the school, we have kind of eerie orchestral music, which does the same job. It's yeah, just it's a step up from the budget or for the budget, rather. Right. And we go into the science lab once again. Uh, one thing I also noticed, bones, was one thing we noted in the pilot. We said, most likely, we started in the science lab because of the creepy bones and the imagery. But in this episode, there's also creepy things in jars. Yeah, and it's the same great cinematography, the same sweeping shots over just generally eerie imagery. Yeah, and uh, but this episode was actually not directed by Joss. It was directed by Charles Martin Smith and written by Joss. So it's kind of cool how they took similar directions. 
Uh, once again, silence is broken by fist through glass. And uh, it's the same situation, really. Same skeptical girl played by Julie Benz. The same uh, kind of jerk-off guy played by Actually, the same dude. It's a different guy. It's a... Uh... In the pilot, it was just some unknown, but in this episode, it's uh, Carmen Giovanazzo, I believe his name is, Giovan- Giovanazzo, from CSI Miami. Okay. And, and he was young at the time. They both were very young. It's very weird to see. And he does a, it's the same sort of scene. You know, I feel in this version, he's more pushy and he's more creepy. Um. He does look at her neck a lot more. It's more, I guess, thrown in your face that this guy's supposed to be a vampire. It's also very streamlined. They, uh, I mean, they don't need to foreshadow towards anything to do with the theater, so they just cut the theater out altogether. Uh, it's you know, it's a, it's much, it's a much faster scene. Uh, it's done more quickly, but with the same amount of tension. I yeah, I noted that as well. And Lady Vamp goes vamp face. And bites him one human death. One human down is our official death count of Buffy the Vampire Slayer so far. And if you watch the commentary, uh, Joss Whedon actually notes that this one hallway that we see here, that hallway happens to be the entire school. They didn't have the budget, so one hallway serves as the entire school, excluding the classrooms. So make note of that while you're watching. There's only one hallway shot from different angles. Which is kind of cool, and it's pretty resourceful, actually. Yes. And uh, at this point in the commentary, Joss also states that this is really the mission statement of the show. Nothing is as it seems. Though, to be fair, he says mission statement about three or four times during the commentary, but this one really feels like it fits. Nothing is as it seems. Very true. And we cut after that to the lo-fi theme song by Nerf Herder. Uh, you know, this does get updated in later seasons. They re-record a better quality version but it kind of it's pretty grungy, uh, indie band Nerf Herder, and yeah, there's a story behind that as well. The producers weren't happy, or rather, the creators of the show weren't happy with what the producers were finding for music. You know, all these big Hollywood names, and you know, Joss and his staff weren't happy with the sounds that they were coming up with. So they went around to a bunch of local musicians and asked them, "Can you write us a theme song?" And Nerf Herder ended up uh, winning the slot. Actually, in the commentary, um, the person who turns him on to Nerf Herder in the first place is uh, Alison Hannigan. She suggests that they ask them to record, and Joss listened to some of their music. He liked it, so he asked them, and they ended up winning uh, the winning the slot. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, one thing that I liked, uh, Joss is describing the theme song, and he said it just fit the show so well because... He almost described it as not only Buffy's theme for the show, but Buffy's theme for the character. Because it starts off all, you know, like creepy organ orchestra, and then immediately goes into hard rock. And he described it as someone, much like Buffy, who has no patience for for cliched horror movie scenarios. And, you know, it brings a very, you know, rock attitude to everything. And so I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, and it, it does describe the show as well because it's, you know, it's got the classic horror motifs and then it just cuts right into the modern version of it. Yeah, this rocking, uh, very up-tempo modern version. Um, and after this, we see Miss Buffy in bed having bad dreams about vampires and graveyards and lairs and all sorts of creepy things. Which very, are, 
David Lynchian. <laughs> right. A very strange sequence. And they're all actually shots from later on in the season, so keep an eye out for them. But uh, her mom wakes her up, and her room, we see at this point, is a huge mess from unpacking. Uh, Buffy goes to school, and this time it's actually not Terrancid. I noted this. Uh, I don't know what band it is, but it's not Terrancid. My guess is that it is Sprung Monkey, because throughout the first two episodes, Sprung Monkey does almost all the music in the background, I've noticed. Yeah, that was my thought process as well. Uh, we see Buffy's mom, Joyce, drops her off. So we don't just cut to Buffy at school already. Her mom, Joyce, is dropping her off. And this is the first time we meet Joyce. Uh, and Christine Sutherland plays Buffy's mother. And she's... The story of how she got cast is interesting because she's not a fan of the horror genre. She wasn't even looking for work. And her agent found her this role... And said, you got to do it. And she ended up winning it. And she's previously known for Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and not much else, really. But after this point, uh, Buffy's mom, you know, in the car as Buffy's leaving, gives her encouraging words of advice. Like, you'll make friends in no time and try not to get kicked out. <laughs> yeah, which really shines a lot of light onto, you know, for people who haven't seen the movie, onto... Buffy's previous situation and what kind of person she is. It also misleads you a little bit, as we'll see coming up here. Uh, but, yeah, it's it definitely is an intriguing statement. As soon as Buffy gets out of the car, this is the first time in the pilot where we meet Sarah Michelle Gellar. So it's... we They added some filler scenes in there, but this is where the pilot, first time we see Buffy, and she's blonde. Uh, and there's a really cool story about that, too, that I'd like to tell. Uh... When Joss had cast Sarah Michelle Gellar as Buffy, Charisma Carpenter as Cordelia, and now had Allison Hannigan playing Willow, they all had the same dark brown hair color that you now see Charisma Carpenter with. And he said, well, we need to change it up a bit. Who wants to be blonde? Who wants to be a redhead? And that's basically how it happened. And it doesn't seem like it was planned that Buffy was blonde and inverting the whole trope. But it, it really worked out that way. It, and it really worked well, I think. I agree. So that's a cool story, I think, of how they all got their hair colors. It's kind of like a toss of the coin for yeah, something it, that we all know so well by now. Yeah, I mean, everybody knows at this point, you know, Willow's a redhead, Buffy's blonde, Cordelia's brunette. You don't even think of them as anything else. You can't think of them as anything else. Even... <laughs> Though Cordelia has some interesting hair choices uh, later, but you know she'll always be brunette in everyone's mind. Right. Uh, after this, we see Xander skateboarding through the crowd. We know him from the pilot. Same guy, same skateboard. Uh, it's the '90s, so everybody and their grandma skateboarded, and that's my only explanation for why he's got a skateboard. Joss actually explained this in the commentary. He said that Xander was supposed to be a skater kid, and he was supposed to skateboard a lot. And then after this sequence, he decided that Xander was never going to skateboard again because he said it was just, it's a, you know, a lot more lighting that you have to do. Basically every, everything that they cut back in production, he attributes to lighting. So he says there's a lot more lighting. You have to kind of disperse a crowd so nobody gets hurt. And also you need a stunt. He, Nicholas Brendan did his own stunt in this scene, which isn't that impressive, but, you know, good for him. And so he said there's just there's too much work involved with skateboarding. You also have to track a longer shot. So he just said no more skateboarding. People can walk. Right. And he, his eye 
catches on Buffy. I believe it's Buffy. He catches on someone. He's checking out a girl, and he crashes right into a railing. And I noted here, smooth stepping by Austin Hannigan. Um, because as soon as he hits the rail, his skateboard slides under, and she steps right over it into frame. And I was like, wow. If that was me, I, if she doesn't look down. I would have tripped and face-planted. <laughs> and one thing I noticed here is just the instant chemistry between Allison and Nicholas. And if you watched the pilot, uh, you'll you'll immediately notice it because of how serious it was lacking between Riff and Nikki. So this was, you know, I personally, I noticed it immediately. Yeah, and Allison's best known for the American Pie series. Uh, you know, that was not long after Buffy started. It was still while I was going, I believe, and uh, after. And more recently for How I Met Your Mother, she did a very long, I believe, 10-season stint on that show. So that's what you'd know her for nowadays. But it's the same dialogue I noticed as the pilot. Exact same dialogue, but it's just so different. Just the way that Allison delivers it and, you know, how, like you said, their chemistry. Yeah, I, it, it feels like a completely different scene. And one thing that I thought was good, they wrapped up a bow that we had a complaint about in the pilot. She tells Xander, just go to the library, which gives him an excuse to be there where we griped in the pilot that he was there for no reason and it didn't really fit his character. Yeah. Especially if they had done that now, because I uh, will get to it once we get to the library scene, but I noted uh, the book that he was reading, and it's not something Xander would read. <laughs> and after this, we see Jesse, which is Xander's BFFFL. I like to think of him as Tall Xander. Yeah, he's played by Eric Belfer, who's in uh, some show that's really popular right now. Haven, I believe it's called. Right, the Stephen King one. Um, and He shows up, and he discusses... They discuss the new girl, him and Xander, mainly. And, yeah, Tall Xander's a good description for him because, really, that's his personality. That's his only personality is that he's a tall, taller Xander. And he yeah. wasn't in the pilot. So Both Xander and Jesse actually were based... Uh, they were amalgamations of awkward interactions that Joss Whedon had with girls. So, um, yeah, they're, they're essentially... Every Joss Whedon show seems to have, to some extent, a character that's based on himself. You know, Wash if we're going with Firefly, Topher and Dollhouse, even Fitz and Simmons and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. So, yeah, that these are our Joss characters, our Joss uh, OC inserts, if you will, in Buffy. <laughs> yeah, that's one way to put it. Uh, now, Jesse was supposed to be in the opening credits, uh, just as with all the other main cast, but they actually they didn't have the budget to put him in there, so that's why you don't see him at the start. Yeah, uh, he said he really wanted to, but just the he he can't stress enough on the commentary shoestring budget, uh, how much the WB liked their show, but they they even film in a warehouse because they couldn't afford a set. So yeah, their budget was for season one in particular not very high. Uh, and I think really Xander and Jesse are typical teenage boys. They're not exceptionally written, but for a show written by adults, they definitely understand teenagers. I guess. Yeah, that's that's true. Uh, we come to Principal Flutie's office, and it's played by Ken Lerner now, who's really known for playing Principal Flutie, and that's it. Yeah, but he, I, I really like him in this role. He, he does a, he, I find him just all around funnier and more expressive. One thing that caught my ear immediately is he calls her Buffy. <laughs> yeah, he, he actually got her name right. That was a, a throwaway joke that they threw away. On. Um, his first scene is just so funny. He rips up her old school transcript and 
he says, you get a clean slate here at Sunnydale, uh, even if you... Oh, dear. And he begins to tape back up the transcript. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, part, that part always makes me chuckle. And uh, good line by him, too. Students are free to call me Bob. And so Buffy begins, okay, Bob. He's like, but they don't. <laughs> He's just and, got really great lines. Yes, he uh, starts to tape up her transcript after realizing that she had burned down her previous school's gym. Which is a reference to the movie, which we will get to eventually. I believe it's a reference to the movie, unless it's yes, retconned it slightly. Well, you know, to be honest, I don't remember the movie that well, but I do remember the comic that was based on the script of the movie, and that this does apply. So, And uh, Buffy's rebuttal is, but the gym was full of vamp asbestos. Yeah, uh, so right up in this series, in the pilot, uh, you know, through most of the pilot, Buffy seems like an ordinary girl, and then you start wondering, okay, there's something up here. Uh, but right off the bat with this, they, you know, well, even with her vampire dream, you're like, okay, there's something special about this girl. Right, and I, I don't know if I prefer that, but it definitely makes sense. You know, you don't want to watch a regular show with a regular teenager for three quarters of it. You know, a Degrassi with vampires at the end. Especially since people had seen the movie and they were expecting her to fight vampires and then for most of it she, there was no mention. Plus it's the title, so you kind of know what you're getting into. But uh, Flutie puts all the files in order and subtly threatens her, basically. He says she's welcome here, but there's a, he, there's threats. I feel it was a threat. If Yeah, he says... We're looking out for your interests. We want you to look out for our interests. And if your interests and our interests don't mesh... And he yeah. slaps the folder shut. Uh, later in the hallway, Buffy drops her bag, just like in the pilot. And one thing that I... It made me laugh. And I think it was a stylistic choice. And it, it was perfect. In the pilot, Xander buffs into, bumps into Buffy, rather. And that's why he gets, you know, all helping her pick up her stuff. But in this, she just drops it on her own, and Xander, who's in a swarm of students, whips his head around and, like, swoops in like a hawk and starts helping her pick up stuff like, new girl, I gotta make a good impression. Like, it was one thing that great. amused me, uh, one thing that amused me, sorry, is a uh, person, uh, uh, there's these two students talking, and the girl bumps Buffy, and she ends up spilling the contents of her handbag, but the girl's not paying attention because there's another student describing something to her and I don't know what he could possibly be describing. He throws his hands in the air and like, like raise the roof style. And he's just huge sweeping gestures. And it's, it's so fake. <laughs> and she's just so engrossed in his story <laughs> that she bumps into Buffy. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I didn't notice that, but Xander is extremely awkward trying to hit it up with Buffy, but just painfully awkward. Buffy seems pretty creeped out by him, to be honest, off the bat, and she uh, walks off. But This is one scene that, uh, in the commentary, Joss says that Xander is a prettier, more muscular him, uh, because I, I really like this interaction. It's so painfully awkward when, you know, the Xander is me. Hi, maybe I'll see you around at school, since we both go there. So it's just, <laughs> it's painful to watch. <laughs> And uh, she forgot her steak again, which we griped about it last episode, so I don't think we're going to talk about it this episode, but why would he call it a steak, really? Uh, but we'll let it slide. We'll let it slide. And we cut to class. 
And instead of just a montage of Buffy being Pody in class like we got in the pilot, uh, which happens later in the pilot, not at this point, uh, the teacher's talking about the Black Plague, and I thought it was funny because she refers to it as fun. She's very, she's got a very dull voice like any high school teacher, but she's excited, and she says, the fun thing about the Black Plague. Yeah, and she writes, the first thing you see is her writing death on the board, which I'm like, oh, yeah, I get it, Buffy. I know, <laughs> I know what you're doing. But, uh, Buffy doesn't have a textbook, so she leans over and she uh, shares with Cordelia, who we don't really know yet, just some girl. And after class, Cordelia introduces herself and mentions that there's textbooks in the library and I can show you the way. But really, all I caught from this scene was, oh my god, those pants. Those horrible, hideous, olive green 90s pants. I hate them, I hate See, them. I couldn't take my eyes off. In my notes here, I wrote canned peas, and I could not figure out for the life of me why I wrote that. I guess and that's I think why. you just hit the nail on the head that it was for disgusting green pants. Yeah, I just, I'm not a diva, but but I couldn't get over this '90s fashion. And I think most of season one of Buffy is going to be less talking about Buffy and more talking about the fashion of the '90s. This is the '90s fashion verse podcast. Well, uh, here's a little uh, teaser for episode two, is I definitely make fun of a lot of people's outfits in that episode. <laughs> so stay tuned. But uh, Buffy mentions she's from L.A., Cordelia says she'd love to live there, and Cordy quizzes her on cool things, made me laugh, lots of pop culture references. She says, James Spader, he needs to call me. That one in particular made me laugh out loud, because Joss Whedon wrote this. So Joss Whedon wrote the line, James Spader, he needs to call me. And now Joss Whedon and James Spader are working on Avengers Age of Ultron together. Yeah, I noted that as well. And also, John Tesh is the devil. But you think at this point, Buffy's made a friend. Well, of course, if you've seen the pilot, you don't. But if you haven't seen the pilot, you think, wow, Buffy's made a friend. She seems pretty cool. She seems interested in Buffy. And then they come across a willow at the water fountain. And Cordy just unleashes all this mean onto Willow. Poor Willow. And... Willow's just meek and awkward and shuffles off, and Buffy doesn't seem okay with it. I do like uh, Cordelia's line at that point, as mean as it is. Looks like you've seen the softer side of Sears. Which I believe was in the pilot as well. I can't recall. But uh, this is the first time Cordelia mentions the bronze, uh, which we will see later. It's in the bad part of town, which is a half a block from the good part of town. Because there's not a lot of town. (laughs) So Buffy seems put off by Cordelia after this rudeness to Willow, and she heads to the library, and it's a, such a different library. You yeah. Know, like, entirely different. Different set. I When I first watched the pilot, I hadn't seen Buffy in a while, and I thought, you know, that looks about right. But after watching this episode, I was like, no, that looks right. That is the library from Buffy the Even Vampire. Even the, the very strange, almost out-of-place-seeming cage for the restricted books, I believe that's what they're for. Right. It, it's just everything. If suddenly it felt like home, uh, in the pilot or in the script rather, it described the library as labyrinthian before she reaches the front desk. Uh, but as Joss once again says in the commentary, it's really hard to light a labyrinth, so they didn't do it. So Buffy sees a newspaper article circled about a local boy missing, so she's already on edge. And then Giles taps her on the shoulder, uh, or we don't know it's Giles, but spoiler, it's Giles. And one thing I noted is how strangely he taps her on the shoulder and maybe that's something nitpicky to point out maybe it's a british thing 
but he kind of maybe it's because he was uncomfortable working with her you know they were just starting to work together they don't want to you know touch each other too much but you know it was it was weird <laughs> if you go back and watch it he kind of like lightly correct i don't know it's just weird uh, Joss was very concerned about the dynamic between Buffy and and Giles. Uh, he constantly cited the the sixth uh, what was it the six inch rule. Every, he points it out every time it's broken and points out every time it's not. Uh, he he said he just he did not want Giles to be the creepy librarian. And uh, I like how cheery he is in this scene. Just he's just he's so happy that she's there. Uh, J- Joss said in fact that. When he auditioned, he was instantly cast because everyone played it old and stuffy and just like a boring librarian. And he is, I mean, he, his character is supposed to be old and stuffy, but it doesn't make the actor not just an absolute joy to watch. And that's why they cast, uh, that's why they cast Anthony as Giles. Right. And I don't think he, I think he sort of comes off as stuffy, but he does a very good job of being more than that. Yeah, well, one thing that I really like about the adults in this series, and uh, Joss himself said it was, you know, he, it was something that he absolutely wanted, is even like Giles and Joyce. These are the adult characters, but he didn't want to portray them as adults or the devil or adults know everything. Giles and Joyce both just moved to new places as well, and they are clearly just as lost as the students, and. You know that's you know it's great. It, you you really you can relate to them even though they're not the characters you're supposed to be relating to. They're not dislikable characters and they're not boring or poorly written. Right. So I think that's great as well. Um, scene continues just like the pilot. Giles pulls out that vampire book and it's really it's shot for shot, word for word, expression for expression of the pilot. It's you know they did the scene identically. Yeah. And I think that's. That's pretty cool. Uh, we cut to the locker room, and this time it isn't attached to the hallway. It is still the shower room, but it's not attached to the hallway. I noticed that because it creeped me out. And we still have the unintelligent 90s girl speak between Aphrodisia and Aura, talking about how Buffy was kicked out. I believe Aura was recast, actually. I'm not sure, but I swear they threw French in there this time. <laughs> I was listening. I played it back a couple times. Like, that's not in- that is French. I swear that's French. Um, and then, of course, opens the locker, a body falls out, the body of our gentleman from the opening of the episode. Did you jump this time? I did not jump, but one thing I noticed, um, the, the extra work in this scene, because the girl in the background is unfazed. (laughs) (laughs) Body falls out of the locker and she kind of like, like grasps her seat, like, oh, (laughs) but like, it's like... Like a, a minorly tense scene in a horror movie, as opposed to a body just fell out of a locker near you. Maybe the extra thought they weren't rolling. <laughs> no, that is... Yeah, I didn't notice that. But we get cut from this tense scene to a even more tense scene of Willow eating a sandwich outside. Uh, <laughs> Buffy introduces herself, and Willow's got the greatest reaction ever. It, it just caught me so off guard... Buffy says, hi, Willow, right? And Willow's response, why? <laughs> yeah, and then she immediately apologizes. <laughs> and she's so like Giles, I just couldn't get over how just cheery she was in the scene. She's just so happy. And that's really why she was cast over Riff, is because 
Riff Regan's Willow was so down on herself. She was so, you know, upset. She would, you know, make a joke like, no boys ever talk to me, except for today. And But, like, Alison Hannigan would be like, no boys ever talk to me, except for today. And she'd, you know, she'd turn it around and find the positive in everything. Yeah, and just complete different characters. Uh, I mean, it's written with the same lines and delivered so differently. Uh, the network actually didn't like Willow. And they were constantly giving Joss notes like, hey, make her more like Buffy, make her more hip, make her dress cooler. And he's like, hey, the point of an ensemble show is that everyone's different. But they kept trying to make her more and more just like a clone of Buffy. And so he said that's why he he personally thought the outfit that Willow wears in this episode is cute. But he said that's why she never wears it again. Because constant notes trying to change Willow and make her different. And Which, she, as you can see over the course of the series, Willow, I mean, whether it be network notes or you know, bonafide character development, definitely becomes a very different character. Right. And she's wearing, speaking of her outfit, she's wearing a pin, and I, I can't make it out, but I believe it's of bowling. I believe <laughs> it's a bowling ball hitting two bowling pins. <laughs> like a lapel pin, but right on like the breast pocket area. Bobby tells Willow, she, and I don't, this part caught me off guard, and I don't I don't know if I agree with it. Willow says, oh, you just want to be my friend because blah, blah, blah. And Buffy says, no, I just want to be your friend because I don't want to fail. Essentially, yeah. And Willow, is a, not only is she okay with this, she's excited by this. <laughs> yeah, she's super excited about helping Buffy study. And But basically, Buffy tells her, I only want to be your friend because you're smart, and I don't want to fail. And... That's not a very, you know, the way she said it isn't so harsh, but that's the way that's the way it is. And Willow is still pumped. <laughs> um, so Buffy doesn't want to meet in the library when Willow suggests a study date there. It gives her the Wiggins. <laughs> and was this slang word around before the show? I'm not sure, but they definitely use it a lot. It it's it's strange, and I've heard it since, but I don't know if it was around before. And they do confirm that Giles was a curator at a British museum. So it is canon. We weren't sure in the pilot if it was canon, and it definitely is. And Jesse and Xander show up. Xander makes a Xander joke, and Buffy seems really confused and almost scared by this joke. (laughs) I I just wrote sense of humor. I can't remember what his joke was, but he... (laughs) I remember it amused me. And he has the same dialogue about a tiny fence and self-defense, which... Sick rhymes. And Xander calls Sunnydale a one Starbucks town, which I laughed out loud. Yeah, that amused me as well. A one Is that how in California you yes. measure the worth of a town? In I imagine I imagine so. <laughs> <laughs> and Cordelia comes up and says, Hey, don't hang out with these guys. Uh Jesse immediately on sight of Cordelia locks on and hits on her. <laughs> yeah, he homes in. And it was, <laughs> I don't know why he thought that was an appropriate time. And then Cordelia mentions that there's a dead body in the locker. and An extreme dead guy. And Jesse continues to flirt with her. <laughs> Unfazed, just keeps on flirting. So Bobby asks questions about the body. Cordelia is wigged. And I don't know if that's my word or if the show's word. But Cordelia is not okay with all this. She thinks it's creepy that Buffy wants to know. And... Buffy decides to check it out for herself. 
she can't uh, open the locker room, so she breaks the door jam by just Which opening our, it. Forcefully. Our first, uh, our first taste of Slayer strength there when she needlessly shatters the door. <laughs> and it's not that she kicks it open; it's that she opens it too hard. <laughs> like that just seems strange to me. <laughs> but she's frustrated by the vampires, just like in the pilot. And she decides to confront Giles in the library. She gives the same dialogue about not caring, but she doesn't do a stupid random handspring. So that was good. Yeah. Uh, in the pilot, uh, I preferred her reaction to finding the vampire bite. You know, he was very like, oh, not this again. Uh, but the scene in the library where she's confronting Giles, that was definitely much better acted in the show. Uh, you know, a lot more subtlety in the scene. Right. And even with the lines, you know, why'd you come here? To, t- to tell you I don't care. This, it was all just all around better acted. Apparently this was one of the last scenes shot of the entire season because they had to they, he was too it. angry. Joss left the set. Uh, they shot it. He trusted the judgment. Then Sarah told him, I think I did it too angry. You might want to take a look at that. And they ended up reshooting it. Yeah, this scene and another scene, they ended up reshooting just due to how angry he felt it went down unnecessarily angry. Buffy was too hostile, he felt. And then, uh, of course, she refuses to accept her calling as a slayer because it got her kicked out of her previous school. And then Giles, uh, once again, says the line that I wrote it down this time, the great line, zombies, werewolves, incubi, succubi, everything you've ever dreaded was under your bed but told yourself couldn't be by the light of the day, they're all real, which really sets up the series. Right. Uh, the whole scene was just as expository as the pilot, but just all around better time, better done because it didn't feel like they were just force feeding you a bunch of information and lore. Right, and she even explains to how to make a vampire. You know, she says you have, they have to suck your blood, and you have to suck their blood, and it's a whole big sucking thing. And I, you know, that's you know, different stories of vampires do siring differently, and it's nice that they laid out straight up. This is how it happens in our show. <laughs> and, yeah, this is also almost word for word, the same scene, like you said, but just better done, I felt. Uh, bad things seem to gravitate at at, uh, Bu- at Buffy, at Sunnydale. They don't seem to know why. But Xander overhears this once again. And uh, the, uh, yeah. he, he peeks out from behind the shelf, says, What? And I paused it, and I just I kept trying to enhance the image. CSI style, trying to see <laughs> what Xander was holding, holding, and I've determined that it's the theorems of trigonometry, which is, <laughs> it fits in with what Willow told him to do, but it also is just a very not Xander book to have. Yeah, and Giles confronts Buffy in the hall after this, and... Six-inch six rule. Six-inch rule. And she says, this is Sunnydale, how bad can it be? So, Q, how bad can it be? And we cut to underneath the school, where there's a cave lit in candles, a bunch of vampires in a temple thing. It was, uh... Now this scene... I wrote in my notes, felt too Xena. Yeah. It was... <laughs> I don't, it felt a little too... generic 90s fantasy to me. Too... You know, this, cults weren't really the way to go, I felt. Yeah. But... But then this scene happens. <laughs> and 
they're chanting, they're doing a ritual, trying to raise what they call the sleeper. Uh, one of the one vampire there, and he will become more major later on. And we'll talk about him more later on. But he says amen, and to my understanding, vampires oppose religion. They go against religion. Yeah, I mean, crosses have been shown to affect them. Not yet, but crosses do affect them uh, in all mythology. And <laughs> I believe in the second episode, we also we noted another religious object that is very unusual that also appears to somehow affect vampires in some way. Yeah, and... Uh, Holy water as well is one that... Uh, right. That, so... It's very strange that he he went religious with this, and he says "Amen" more than once throughout the throughout the season, and it just it strikes me as odd. Uh, we cut away from this cave, trying to raise the sleeper, to Buffy trying on outfits. Uh, Joyce tells her to be careful going out, and she mentions a little bit about her own backstory that she moved here. She's starting a gallery, uh, and it seems I got the vibe that she's trying too hard to be a parent. It sounds like she's read every, you know, parent book, How to Raise a Toddler, even though Buffy's 16. Yeah. Well, it, yeah, this is where, this is the point in the commentary where, you know, Joss mentions that all the adults in the series, or the major ones, are very much trying to find out who they are in life and find out, you know, they're, they're just going along for the ride like everyone else. And uh, I actually, I really liked Joyce in the scene. I don't know why. I wrote it in my notes even. I really like Joyce. Uh, but, <laughs> but I don't know. She, it... She's a refreshing character. She does have moments. She has moments. <laughs> but as a whole, yeah, I think she's a great character. And they imply that they moved here to escape Buffy's bad past. And Buffy, another slip-up, says, From now on, I'm only going to hang out with the living. Uh, lively. Which, really? Uh, really? Does she, does, does she even how, try? <laughs> I don't know how you mix that one up. Uh, Buffy walks to the club, and a stranger follows behind her. Now, this is the scene cut from the pilot. Uh, she gets cornered in the alley. The stranger walks out quite sexy. It's David Boreanaz, uh, now known for Bones. Uh, but this is the scene that was cut from the pilot. You read the transcript of the scene cut from the pilot. Before we start, is it much different? Um, No, not really. Uh, she does kick his ass, um, which doesn't happen in the pilot. And I mean that in the literal sense as well. Yeah, he can't find uh, Buffy because she's doing an impressive handstand on a beam, and she swings down and literally boots him in the bottom. Uh, the cinematography I thought in this scene was great with just her walking and feeling like she's being trace chased. I wrote down turtle wax. I can't remember why. I think there was a line about it. Uh, that's <laughs> that's possible. Uh, but the only thing, the thing that I could not stop looking at in this scene was David's very, very shiny jacket. It's not like a shiny leather jacket. It looked like it was some sort of velvet or silk, but it was very shiny and like almost distractingly so. And uh, he says, don't worry, I don't bite. Buffy's suspicious, uh, but I know what you want, to kill them all. Eh, so a wrong answer. You want a lifetime supply of turtle wax. So that's the hey, line that you're thinking of. there's the of. turtle wax line. <laughs> Uh, Stranger tells her she's standing on the mouth of hell, the hell mouth, and it's about to open up. That is her... actually, uh, the, the idea of a hell mouth is what sold the network. You know, cue back to that line earlier, zombies, werewolves, incubi, succubi. The idea that high school was a literal hell, and the idea that 
you know, they could do anything. Like, they could do, you know, any kind of monster they wanted. That was what sold the the network. And Joss said it was it was a throwaway. It wasn't originally supposed to be really a big deal. But the network was so adamant on this idea of the Hellmouth that they kept it in. And it became a very huge part of the Buffy lore. And, you know, Hellmouth is a commonly used word. Not, I wouldn't say every day commonly, but it's, you know, it's a... It's a word that's out there, not just in the world of Buffy. Yeah, I like the line um, that the mysterious stranger says when she asks who he is. He says, a friend. And I can't remember her response. But he I don't says, want a friend. Oh, he said, I didn't say I was your friend. And Which I think is great. Uh, he, warns her, he warns her of the, the harvest is coming, another generic culty term yeah and he gives her a little box uh tells her to be ready and she when she opens the box after he leaves she finds a little silver cross but what i couldn't stop staring at was her ugly purple mood ring she just it it stole the scene <laughs> it it's just she opens the box and you're supposed to be looking at this cross I'm like what the hell is she wearing on her finger i did notice that earlier in a different scene uh, and only in a different scene, the library scene, but I remember it being very big. And it looks like a big rock on her finger. And one thing that I also noticed, and there's no way that this was planned, purple, I looked it up, purple on a mood ring means romance. And there was Right when there's the mysterious handsome stranger. Right, there's definitely tension there. But there's no way they could have played it. I don't even know if it's a mood ring, it just looks like one, but it's... There's no way. No way at all. But anyway, we cut to the bronze. Where we hear Sprung Monkey playing live because everyone listens to Sprung Monkey enough in Sunnydale that they had to make an appearance. Right, and it looks like a metal shed from the outside, and as we said earlier, it was. Yes, their, their set is, a, is literally inside of a warehouse. And Guy waves <laughs> at, you know, Buffy's in the bronze, Guy waves, she gets really excited, waves back. He's not waving to her. <laughs> I don't know why that scene was in there, but I made note of it as well. And why did she think this random stranger was waving at her? Like, this middle-aged man. I think, I don't know, maybe to make her feel like she's not in her element, like she thinks she knows this scene, but she doesn't. But she joins Willow. Willow says she thought Xander was coming, but he hasn't showed. And they have a little bit of talk about their past, you know, that they dated when they were five. And Willow jokes about how she's not able to flirt physically but if you watch her eyes this whole scene they just keep flicking back at buffy's mood ring i swear <laughs> they do and I, i'm like me too me too allison but so this scene sets up the willow's uh, affection for xander and uh, yeah and also that you know willow you know isn't quite a guy's gal she's not a lady's a guy you know what I mean? She, yeah, she's she is socially very, awkward, very single, uber single. And Buffy tells Willow just to seize the moment uh, before she notices Giles creepy up at the upper level, doing nothing, just wandering. And <laughs> I like the uh, dialogue with Willow that oh, we Xander and I used to date, but we broke up. He stole my Barbie, <laughs> and also. Uh, how she just cannot form vowel sounds around men. Yeah, great lines. Like, Allison just really delivers. But 
Bobby jokes to Giles. She goes and visits him. Jokes that he came here to have fun. And he says that he'd rather have a cup of Bovril and a book. And Bovril, uh, one sick puppy from Dennis Hell Horror Podcast, pointed this out to me, this line out to me. He watched this episode before we did. And he tweeted the line to me. And Bovril is not something that I would just want to drink. It's like <laughs> a salty, meaty, I think it's a beef extract. And you mix it with hot water or milk or something like that. But it's... I think it's, it's very British. <laughs> I think it's more of a stock. I think it's supposed to be used as a soup stock and not just a, a drink. <laughs> but you can drink it, which is... Well, you uh, can drink turpentine, but I wouldn't. <laughs> but Giles in the scene was very creepy. Uh, the fact that he was there, even Giles pointed it out. That it, it was just... It's very not okay. He has his reasons for being there, but it's just not okay. Buffy mentions the harvest to Giles. Yeah, yeah, I know all about the harvest. He's confused. And one thing I noticed that Buffy, when she's talking this scene, talking completely normal volume, but Giles is yelling. It's kind of funny because I think to him it's louder than it is because he's yeah. old and stuffy. It's, it's a club scene. And she talk, She tells him about the mysterious stranger. And I love the way she describes him. He's dark and gorgeous in an annoying sort of way. I really didn't like him. And they, he mentions that he knows she's having these nightmares. Uh, and down below, we see, you know, Jesse's hitting on Cordy. Okay, this scene is weird because Cordelia, before Jesse approaches, is talking about cool diseases. She's talking about which diseases are cooler than other diseases. And uh, a lot of them are, you know, sexually transmitted. And she's, she's saying, like, I think the line was something along the line... He could have at least had hepatitis. And it sounds... I, I wasn't paying too much attention because whenever she's on the screen, I don't listen to her dialogue. But it sounds like she didn't date a guy because he didn't have a cool enough disease. And I thought it was very strange. And then Jesse approaches. Um, she blows him off once again. And then we... It's back right up top. The Buffy and Giles on the balcony type area discussing vampires... And she <laughs> she calls Joss a textbook with arms, which the physical imagery just makes me laugh. I can imagine like the page master, like yes. that's what I think of when I think of a textbook with arms. And he's telling her to hone her skills, which for whatever reason makes Joss laugh really hard. He laughs at the word hone. Um, but one thing I liked about that previous scene with Jesse and Cordelia, Joss said that that is verbatim an interaction that happened with him. When he asked the girl, do you want to dance? And she responded, with you? <laughs> so he said that was uh, his little injection of self-loathing in this episode. And so Buffy looks down when she's honing. She's a vampire talking to a girl and says she recognized him because of the old clothes, which is something in the pilot as well, but ultimately downplayed for the rest of the series just because, you, as Josh said, you can't make a vampire scary if they're always wearing the clothes from their era. You know, if you're always if you're wearing Victoria Garb or And even in this episode, it's only that guy. And they address the fact that it's only this guy that's wearing outdated clothing. But they're talking, pointing out this vampire, and then the girl that he's talking to turns to the profile, we see it's Willow. Buffy gets afraid. She's like, uh oh. She decides to go down there, and Giles looks too afraid to go, actually. Um, Buffy, on the way down, grabs a leg off a chair, which I like for two reasons. 
Well, I, I like for one reason. I don't like for one reason. I like that she ripped the leg off the chair because it shows that, you know, she can get her stakes from anywhere. You know, she doesn't have to just go sharpen a piece of wood. You know, anything can be a stake for her. But what I don't like is the way she rips it off. It makes no, the break makes no sense. Because the piece of chair that's still sticking up looks like a stake. Which means the piece that she's holding should look like an inverted stake. And you can't really hurt somebody with that. No, it's like two stakes in one. Yeah, I guess so. It's got two points. But it was just, I thought it was, it made no sense, that break. And I don't know, you know, I wasn't really looking at the chair leg before she ripped it off. I don't know how poorly it was placed. I don't know. It just made no sense. I noticed that. But someone pops up behind Buffy. She gets really tense, picks him up by the throat, and points the stake at their throat. And it's Cordelia. Who screams, what is your childhood trauma? Uh, now, one thing I noted, none of the Cordettes here are Harmony. Uh, she's got a bunch of her... Well, they actually mentioned that because Cordelia tells Harmony, later, you should have been at the bronze and explains why. But yeah, no, none of them are Cordelia's lackeys. She breaks out her really 90s cell phone and spreads the word to everybody that Buffy's crazy. Uh, Giles rejoins Buffy after this, says he's going to help by going to research... And she says, it's okay, I can handle it. And good pacing here, because we go from that to Giles coming back to another scene where Jesse's hitting on a girl in a... It's almost like a sex chair. It's like a big... I don't think you ever see them again in the bronze. But they're, it's basically like a sex chair. I do not recall. It's a big swinging, like, pod that she's sitting in. You can only see her from the back, sort of. And he's talking to her and hits on her and asks her name and she turns and says Darla and it's the vampire from the beginning who now is a name so she's I noticed that she's smiling way too big and way too creepy and I feel that this is poor acting on Julie Benz's part this is her first role ever I think I think it was at least her first big role and I know she said in an interview that Joss really just wanted a vampire like her wanted someone that looked sweet acted sweet but ultimately was evil. And I think that was her trying too hard to be sweet, but also trying to be creepy, and it just came off as bad. I didn't well, like this it. this is a really creepy line. She says something, I think she says, I'm here with my family. He says, do I know any of them? And she says a line that in any other situation is just not okay when you're first chatting up someone. She says, oh, you'll probably meet them. <laughs> That's too direct. <laughs> But, yeah, I just felt the acting there was maybe a little bit poor on Julie's part. She's a great actress, and she's done great things since. But at this very early stage in her career, maybe not so much. Uh, we cut back to under the school. There's a pool of blood, and a character who we will come to learn as the master rises up from this pool of blood as the big vampire from earlier watches. One thing that's really bizarre is in the script, it says the master is this man named Heinrich Joseph Nest, and it gives him a bit of a backstory, which is never explained on screen, ever. Yeah, I don't know why they did that. And also, when he rises out of the pool of blood, he's supposed to be dripping with blood, like continue dripping with blood throughout the whole scene, maybe throughout the whole series. It's not really specified. They decided not to go with it anyway because it's just too difficult to make him always wet and dripping with blood. It's just, And it stops being scary after a while, I think. Yeah, and I wrote uh, in my notes here, the scene is impossibly generic. <laughs> yeah, and we 
you know, this is where we meet Mark Metcalf, really, who plays the master, mostly known for the National Lampoon movies at this point, and that's part of the reason why Joss picked him, to contrast that entirely, to take, like, the comic, like, a comic relief serious character and make him the big villain, and then he said he just kind of brought a creepy charisma to the role, but in my... Yeah, he said it. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry. For a generic character, uh, he said that a lot of the readings were very generic, and Mark actually brought, you know, a little, you know, a little humor, a little life to the role of the undead, if you will. Yeah. And, yeah, it was... I mean, his teeth bug me, because everything he says has a lisp, (laughs) but that's hardly Mark's fault. In my opinion, yeah, the master is as generic and Nosferatu-esque as you can get for a vampire. Like, he's really, you think of big evil vampire, all the other vampires look like regular dudes, well, then the big ones are going to look like Nosferatu. That's just, it's just the easy way to go, really. It's the safe route, and it's not unexpected at all, and it's just really, it's the first season. You know, it's, they're coming into their own. And the makeup was actually based on a bat. Uh, John Vulik did the makeup, and he said he actually based it off a bat, which I can see somewhat. Yeah. And one thing I thought was weird is the sort of t- temporal rift. I don't know what he did. He kind of rippled the air a bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, the Master needs the big vamp, who we learned to be Luke, to help Brian him walk. Thompson. Yeah. And help him walk to this rift of a sort. Uh, it's a force field, and he just can't get past it. And he asked Luke to bring him something young to regain his strength. And we cut to Willow on her date. Because Q, you know, that's a good transition. Bring me something young. Cut to Willow on a date with who we think is a vamp. And she's being awkward and he's silent. He's just, he doesn't answer any of your questions. Going back to the cave, one thing I noticed is... Um, now half of this cave looks like a, you know, like a collapsed cathedral. And half of it looks like crumpled up construction paper. To make rocks. <laughs> and like you can even find pictures where in that picture alone, the contrast is immediately apparent. And I think, I don't know if they ever explained this in the series, but my theory as to why the Master is trapped is because he collapsed and a church collapsed on top of him. Vampires can't go into churches. And so he's kind of like trapped in this weird in-between state. That's a really good theory. I didn't ever think of that ever. Because it's clearly, there's definite cathedral imagery around him. He even has an altar down there. (laughs) Yeah. No, that's a really good theory. Maybe it is brought up later, um, or maybe maybe nothing's ever mentioned of it. But for now, that's what we're going with. But Buffy's hunting for the Willows. She runs into Xander, who mentions Willows with a boy, and she's worried. Xander's hope it's not a vampire because then you'll have to slay him, which is not the time, really. <laughs> you, I know some crazy information about you. I'm going to drop it right now when you're stressed out. No, way to go. Uh, Buffy's confused as to why Xander knows. And Xander, one thing I really like, Xander says, no, I know you think you're the Slayer. So it, right off the bat, he thinks she's crazy. He doesn't just buy it, which I think is really good. Yeah, because the way he sold it, it felt like, He's accepting this a little too easily, but then he reveals, oh no, you're just crazy. And, uh, yeah, I like. Buff- oh, sorry, go ahead. I would say, I really like Buffy's line, you have to help me or there'll be one more dead body, which is really 
cold. <laughs> which, well, she says, actually, more actually, one more dead body in a locker, which psh, that implies all vampires break into lockers all the time. And I don't like that generalization. I really feel offended. <laughs> but uh, the creepy guy tries to get Willow to go into a mausoleum. Being a normal teenage girl, she says, no, thank you. And he pushes her in. And she goes to leave, but she bumps into Darla, who insults her, saying, is this the best you could do? And why did you bring your own? I did. And Jesse stumbles in, holding his neck. And he says, one of the greatest lines in the episode, because of how he delivers it. And I really like it. He's just, he's kind of weak, holding his neck. She gave me a hickey. <laughs> yeah. One thing that really I that bugged me was... Uh, Darla comes in and sees this other vampire with Willow, and what he says is, she's fresh. What the hell are you talking about? How yeah. do you know, like, what do you, what do you mean, what would be the alternative? <laughs> yeah, she's a little bit stale. <laughs> like, she's, she's, she's fresh, she's alive, yes. So, like, and that's also a variation of a line that vampires repeat throughout the season. So... <laughs> Yeah. Um, Willow tries to leave the mausoleum, and Darla, we see it, her transform into the vamp face. First time on screen, and it is so bad. It is terrible. It is clear, centered, special effects shot. You know right away something's going to happen because of how it's framed. And then, bam, it looks like a complete different shot. Because it, it is. It's They cut, and then they did a new shot, but it doesn't even, it's not smooth. doesn't line up. And her skin tone changes entirely to try and, you know, they tried to blend it in with the prosthetics, obviously, and it changed her skin tone entirely, which makes it look like the video quality is lessening as they do it. It's just, it was bad. It's the 90s, early, mid-90s, mid to late, but the, the bad special effects were very, you know, very pronounced. I could, I cringed. So one th- <laughs> I cringe it as well, actually. But one thing Joss said in the commentary is early on he learned put Willow in peril uh, because people really like Allison. She's really sweet. She's adorable. People don't want to see Willow in dangerous situations, which does explain a, a kind of horrible episode that will come up later this season. Uh, but, you know, it's a, it's a good lesson because people like Willow, and at this point, <laughs> the... the the stakes, no pun intended, wow. are highest when Willow is on the line. The stakes, clairvoyant. That was not intended. I promise you. Uh, oh, but Buffy breaks in and she starts to quip to the vamps, which you'll soon find out is her thing. And she insults the vampire's outfit, saying that he looks like Debarge, which is a pop group with really ridiculous of. It made me laugh. Uh, I like. Uh, she says. That it's not going to be PG. There's violence, strong language, adult content. <laughs> Which is almost most likely the rating of the show. You know, Except for, well, there's no real strong language in the show. Well, but I don't know. In the 90s, was Wiggins a swear word? I don't know. It very well could be. Uh, the vampire tries to sneak up on her and she dusts him. Which looked much, a lot better than it does in the pilot. Yeah, it's much different. But it also feels like they threw a a ball of dust at the ground and it dispersed. So yeah. it, it's better, but it's not good. Yeah. And he said he, they originally left clothes behind, uh, <laughs> but 
it would be so hard to clean up and so hard to explain. So they just boom, they disperse into dust. Wouldn't that be super funny if one if they did leave clothes behind and then one episode you just see Xander's closet and he's just filled with like a bunch of like vampires' clothes, like old <laughs> outfits. He just collects them because he, what else am I going to do? His clothes are all baggy and never fit anymore. <laughs> yeah, but that's a vamp death count one. So one human, one vamp for the first episode. Buffy and Darla fight while Xander and Willow help Jesse away. Xander popped in the background, also behind Buffy, by the way. They help Jesse away. And Buffy knocks down Darla. Is about to get her final quip in, which is a thing that she needs to do. It's like psychological need. But Luke picks her up by the neck. By the neck. And throws her by the neck. Like, ouch. <laughs> throws and her it, by and the she, neck. And she hits the side of this stone coffin in the mausoleum and she like lands right on the corner and then just rolls off and even Joss said he felt bad for that stunt woman because that's such a painful fall yeah just ouch and Darla's sniveling and runs away and that's just not didn't feel right to me for For a show show, yeah yeah for a show with such strong female characters (laughs) I think we were going for this, it was the same point with that one. For a show with such strong female characters, the big boy vamp has to help the sniveling little girl vamp. It didn't feel right. But also, what didn't feel right is how very slow and calculated that fight sequence was. Yeah, and Luke stays back to handle her. Uh, she fights him with a super cheesy line, and he, well, he tells her the super cheesy line, You're strong. I'm stronger. <laughs> she says, Don't. No, that's such a bad line. And they do variations of it throughout the whole season. And it's not, it's just not good. I get where they were going with it. Like they thought, I don't know. It's just not good. For also for the first kind of semi major threat in the series. Why make it stronger? I mean, we're, we're, we're one, not even one episode in. Why is she already fighting creatures that are... I mean, we haven't seen her fight things that are on par with her, and she's already fighting things stronger. Or at least he thinks he is. But yeah, Willow and Jesse run into a lot of vamps. Actually, the same shot from Buffy's dream. And Buffy does some cool stunts back at the mausoleum. Is about to stake Luke, but he breaks her stake by just crumbling it, basically. He snaps it by just grabbing it, which is weird. But... Yeah, they he throws her off, and another great pacing. Giles is back at the library researching the harvest, and we get a cool juxtaposition here of Luke's dialogue as he's spitting all this exposition at Buffy, um, as it's showing Juxta- in Giles' juxtaposed exposition. Right, as it shows Giles' book, you know, saying this basically the same thing, but Luke is just spinning it at her like. Like any bad vampire would do, we're going to do this and we're going to do this. And One this. thing that is weird is the the whole thing is they want to resurrect the old ones. And I don't remember my Buffy lore that well, but the old ones are like the original vampire, or the, rather, rather the original demons walking to the earth. And if memory serves, they would see vampires as absolute scum. <laughs> Vampires would be the... I mean, they're, they're dirty. They're human. They're they're the rats of the the old demon world. But all they want to do is, like, we want to resurrect the old ones. 
we want them to walk the earth again. And I don't know if that's what you really want. <laughs> yeah. And we find basically the harvest is on the master can rise again on the third day of the newest light, which while yeah. sounding generic is also confusing as hell. What does that mean? The third I day don't... of the newest light. Like it's Moon just bad cycles. It's, uh, I cannot stand the cult at the center of Buffy season one. I <laughs> to be honest, I really can't. They're very generic. And while as a whole, I don't mind Buffy season one. I cannot stand this facet of it. And Luke throws Buffy right into the concrete coffin next to the skeleton. Uh, it gets eerie quiet. She's looking around, doesn't hear anything. She starts to stand up, but Luke jumps on in and he goes to bite her and the really cheesy cliffhanger to be continued. Right when, like it's the first episode. She's no, I'm not worried for her. Also, I said that the fight before was slow. Luke jumping into the coffin and crouching up to Buffy is the slowest thing that you're like, wow, is is he going to, why isn't she doing anything? And he doesn't, yeah, she she doesn't fight him off. She lets him. I even wrote my, my final note here for episode one, bad cliffhanger. <laughs> and one thing I also want to discuss, Clairvoyant, before we give our ratings, is the dumb vampire names. Because uh, <laughs> we got Darla... And we've got Luke, and another one that we didn't mention earlier, but the one that was staked, the our vamp death count one was named Thomas, and Darla said he was a good vampire. Um, so Darla, Luke, and Thomas are vampires, and as we see later in the series, the vampires adopt cool names. Some of them do. So why yeah. is it part of the cult that they go by these really dumb names? Like these are obviously their real names, but why? Why but not take something is... cooler? I mean, in at least one of these cases, that is not the person's actual name. That is a chosen name, as revealed later in the series. So, I <laughs> I don't know why, A, that name was chosen, or why they all go by um, you know, these kind of biblical... I thought they hated religion, honestly, but they, they, they seem to revere it as much as they can. Uh, I agree. So... I think it's time. Carvoyant, what is your rating out of five stakes for Buffy the Vampire Slayer? Season 1, Episode 1, Welcome to the Hellmouth. I found this episode in no way improved on the pilot. It was just different. So I will give it the same that I gave the pilot, and that is two stakes and one stake broken in half. All right. Well, me, Mr. Universe, I slightly disagree. I think it improved very slightly on the pilot in a few points. Uh, most notably giving Willow a reason to go on a date because Buffy tells her to be confident and giving Xander a reason to be in the library and just fleshing things out a bit, making it a more rounded hour instead of a, a jumpy half hour. So I actually gave it three out of five stakes. Which uh, gave... as... Oh, go ahead. Uh, well, that puts our average rating at 2.75 stakes for the episode. So uh, what I was going to say is, uh, to further elaborate, I felt it did improve in some ways, but also in other ways, I definitely improved the pilot, and I find that the inclusion of the you know, the whole cult and that subplot keeps it at a, at a level 2.5. Weedenverse podcast rating, 2.75 out of 5 stakes.
you like what you hear, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at at Whedoncast. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Podcast, or review, rate, and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher Radio. The Whedonverse Podcast is brought to you by the HHW LOD Network. You can find them at hhwlod.com, on Twitter at hhwlod underscore network, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash hhwlod. The Tangent Bound Network can be found at tangentboundnetwork.com, on Twitter at tangentboundpc, and on Facebook at tangentboundnetwork. Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Season 1, Episode 2, The Harvest, written by Joss Whedon, directed by John T. Kretschmer, aired March 10th, 1997. And so we move on to Part 2 of our two-part opener here of Buffy uh, with The Harvest, which is, a, I mean, you kind of know what's going to happen in this episode by that title, uh, directed by John T. Kretschmer. And once again, written by Joss Whedon. And this episode, it aired back-to-back with Welcome to the Hellmouth, the first episode. So it was almost like a two-hour Buffy special when it first came out in March of 97. So this episode starts with uh, our vampire, Luke, played by Ryan Thompson once again. Uh, he hopped into the coffin at the end of the last episode, about to finish off Buffy uh, with the slowest bite ever. Uh, and she manages to repel him with the silver cross that the mysterious stranger had given her earlier uh, earlier that evening. So Buffy escapes Luke. She saves Willow. And <laughs> I like uh, how, you know, she goes, she saves Willow, and then they're just, they're just dragging an unconscious Xander across the ground. <laughs> right. In uh, another interesting explanation of how she always has so many stakes is she rips a branch off a tree, which I thought was really cool also. So she always has like unlimited stakes because if there's anything wood around, she'll just grab it. Yeah, she just she breaks off wooden anything. She's like, I can use this, but uh, of course Darla has already taken Jesse, and uh, Buffy dusts a vamp off screen here too. Uh, she just goes right off screen, and you hear the dusting sounds. They obviously didn't want to put it in the special effects budget, but I'm gonna count that as a vamp death one. There was two other vampires there, which you can assume she dusted. But since we don't know for sure, I'm not going to count them. Okay. And then we go to the library with Giles. And uh, they kind of... Buffy and Giles attempt to explain the world of the supernatural to a uh, kind of shocked Xander and Willow. Uh, Willow, of course, in her <laughs> her overalls in this episode. And uh, Giles has a great summary, too. Slayer hunts vampires. Buffy's a slayer. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> yeah, uh, Xander. Now I'm gonna ask you a question, Mister Universe. Do you think Xander's shirt has several mushrooms on it, or several jellyfish? Um, upon further inspection, when I checked it out, double checked it when you first mentioned it to me before we started recording, I think it's mushrooms. He is such a weird shirt. I think in 96, maybe everybody owned the fashionable mushroom shirt. Oh, oh I'm not going to say it. No, I'll say it. Uh, Xander was a fun guy. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> no. So he had a shirt with uh, loads of mushrooms on it. I like Willow's line at this part. I need to sit down. And Buffy says, you are sitting down. He says, oh, good for me. And the way she delivers it, too, is great. 
But I really like how this is the first time everyone's working together, you know, all at once. Like the whole core group is together for the very first time talking about vampires. I really, I like that. It felt monumental. Yeah. And uh, we go to our, our cool fallen temple construction paper uh, <laughs> cave and uh, Darla and Luke bring, uh, I can't remember, my notes are unclear here. I believe they bring him Jesse and, oh, and Darla comments, his blood is pure. As opposed to, was it what, HIV? Like, I don't, did maybe... There aren't a lot of blood diseases, so the fact that she had to say that is weird. And it also kind of incriminates him, her because she was not supposed to drink his blood. And the master comments about that, you know, you bring me your scraps. <laughs> and I really, yeah, I really don't like Darla in this season at all. I don't like, I don't like anything about I don't like Julie Benz's acting. I just don't like anything about her. Yeah, no. And uh, they inform the master about Buffy's unusual fighting abilities and say that she may be a slayer. And the master says, a slayer? And uh, everyone has trouble painfully stumbling over their prosthetics and lisps their way through the scene. It's... (laughs) It's true. Uh, they actually ended up rebuilding these prosthetics. After this episode, I believe, uh, they rebuilt them, and they have one for vampires in the background and one for people that actually need to talk. Yeah, because it's it really is a mess, and the, the slurring of the S's is very noticeable. Yeah, and then we cut back to the library. Uh, well, one thing, actually, going back to the cave that I want to mention is, made me laugh, Master talks with Luke, and says, I can't remember the last time you were defeated. And Luke sadly says, 1843, Madrid. He caught me while I was sleeping. Yeah, like he, he just remembers it. He, it also shows that Luke's a pretty old vampire, which is... And then he's been doing, he's been doing really good for a long time, because that's 200 years, and he's been, you know, he's really good. Yeah. And um, 250, to be exact. 150. I don't need to know math. So, back in the library, Giles is telling Willow and Xander that Buffy is the latest chosen to fight all the supernatural threats. Uh, Willow has a great line, does anybody mind if I pass out? Buffy <laughs> says, breathe, breathe. And uh, so they can't discern where vampires might have gone. Buffy says, as soon as they got out of the graveyard, they could just foam, to which Xander replies, they can fly. And Bobby says they can drive, which feels kind of like it's driving the final stake, so to speak, in the in the movie here. <laughs> what is with all these stake references? I hate them. And they're different ones, too. I'm, I'm on the ball. <laughs> but uh, I think that's, like, the third pun I've made. I hate it. But, uh, yeah, anyway, the vampires in the movie, of course, could fly. And they're supposed to fly in the series, but they just could not make it look remotely not silly on a on a TV budget. So they, so they uh, they decided they are going to drive instead. <laughs> Which is I like it better, to be honest. Flying vampires is kind of dumb. Uh, they mentioned that vampires love sewers. Which because they're all teenage mutant ninja turtles. <laughs> because they don't. I mean, you can get anywhere in the city, and you don't need sunlight down there. Uh, there's a lot of cut back and forth between this, and we cut back to uh, the master below, 
who decides to use Jesse as a bait, as a bait. Um, and there's one line that Luke says that I wrote it down. I remember it from what I saw it for the episode previously. I, I remembered it when I watched it here. I don't know why I hate it so much, but I hate it with a fiery passion. Luke says the line, I thought you nothing more as a meal, boy. You've been upgraded to bait. And I, something about that just rubs me the wrong way. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the way he delivers it. I think it's just Luke in general. He calls him boy, which is weird. Yeah, usually... I, I just maybe... Yeah, I think I just don't like Luke in general. Um, so Willow, back in the library... Uh, accesses the city council plans on the oldest computer you'll ever see. Yeah, that thing like predates t- the 90s. It's a Tandy. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, she accesses the city council's plans for the Sunnydale's tunnel system, uh, which has this great bit of dialogue where Giles like, oh, the city just has the information open to the public. And Will says, well, in a way, I kind of stumbled across them after I decrypted the city council's security system. And Giles just has like a look on his face, like I have, I'm, I want nothing to do with this. <laughs> um, and there's a really dumb flashback. Uh, Buffy starts thinking about it. They find the mausoleum. They find that there's only should be one way in and one way out. Or they, Buffy has a flashback that confirms this. But it's a really cheesy black and white flashback that makes it feel like it's a big plot twist. But it's really just not a big deal. And she realizes the only way that Luke could have came, because Luke came from behind her, the only th- logical conclusion as she was facing the door is he came from the crypt. And so Buffy decides to go track down Luke. Xander offers to help. And uh, she declines, and he's kind of hurt <laughs> for some reason. He knows that she's the Slayer. Yeah. Uh, Willow expresses her need to help as well. And so they decide she will continue to help Giles with his uh, research. And Willow is kind of like the research girl of the series, at least for the first part. And this really, this is the first inkling of that. It makes sense, too. And then we go to Buffy attempting to leave school grounds. And And she is stopped by Principal Flutie. And he asks, you're not trying to leave school grounds, are you? And she says, no, she's just admiring the quality fence work. Which is not leaving school grounds. Is that a common rule? Or like- I don't know, because I, I, I remember high school, and I remember no fences, and I remember being able to leave as long as you were not in class. Yeah, so, you know, I don't know if this is a common rule, if this is a U.S. rule, if this is an L.A. rule. Or if this is just a Sunnydale High School rule, but it, it struck me. Yes, and then uh, so one scene I didn't write much notes on it actually, but it's Xander and Willow speaking. Uh, Xander, I believe, says it's like we have a secret, Where's and Willow it? says, or I can't remember who says what. One of them says it's like we have a secret. The other one says it is a secret. You know, we, we, we know something and we can't tell anyone. That's what a secret is. Back at the uh, Buffy leaving school, he closed, when Principal Flutie closes the fence, dumbest pun, he says, You're, that's a Buffy I like to see. 
a you know, good girl with a sensible head on her shoulders and her feet on the ground, and then the awful pun of her jumping the fence. Yes. Bad. <laughs> and so she escapes school grounds uh, to get Giles a book, as she so adeptly lied. Because <laughs> apparently the librarian needs a book from the store. <laughs> and uh, we cut to Buffy in the mausoleum, where the mysteri- dark, mysterious character shows up. Yeah. Um, the acting from David in this scene isn't great. I noticed that right off the bat, but he's so sexy and cheeky, you just gotta love him. <laughs> and he reveals his name. And yeah, he says his name is Angel. Um, which, which I want to discuss. Why? You know, why is- <laughs> of all things, that the writers could have named this character... Angel. It's a kind of cool name. It's kind of girly. I mean, for the for the 90s, I, I know a lot of... In the 90s, there's a lot of... You know, it was a nickname for Angelica, so it's kind of weird. But it's a kind of cool name, I guess. It's, it struck me as odd. Remember that Joss did write for the X-Men? so <laughs> That's fair. Maybe it was a superhero name. But... And so... Uh, he's, they, they have some more sexual tension back and forth. Uh, she, she asks him, do you know what it's like to have a friend? And he looks hurt, which is kind of sad. And she says there wasn't supposed to be a stumper. Uh, mm-hmm. he then, he does end up giving her directions. Eventually he caves in and gives her directions to the master's lair. Uh, she says, wish me luck. He doesn't. She runs into the mausoleum he whispers good luck i thought that was pretty cool i thought that was nice but (laughs) i was thinking why did he refrain from wishing her good luck until she was out of earshot yeah it's i don't know maybe (laughs) what was his thought process he wants to be tough on the girls around maybe maybe but I, I know that there's a pretty good atmospheric score here by walter murphy who did the first the scoring for the first season and I thought he, he did a really good job. And so in the tunnels, uh, Xander catches up with Buffy. Which, how did he leave school grounds if he can't hop a fence like that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, maybe he was already out? Because well, we, there, there was a scene earlier with Willow where he's like, oh, you better get to class. She's like, "Me? you mean we better get to class? Like, yeah, we. And... Maybe he just he left right then and there before Buffy did. Or maybe there's no, that's actually the scene out. after the gate is closed. So I'm not sure how Sander got out. Maybe, maybe there's more than one way out. Maybe Flutie was making a point and immediately unlocked the gate after Buffy was out of eyesight. Hmm. So Xander somehow catches up with Buffy in the tunnels, uh, having decided to follow her despite her telling him not to. Um, then we have this beautiful old school orchestra hit when he shows up <laughs> I mean, it's, it shows that he's a strong character but it also shows that he's a stupid character yeah like strongly stupid and they're walking through the tunnels um she decides to tell this anecdote about killing a vampire who used to be a football player it had a really thick neck and so she sawed through it with an exacto knife <laughs> pretty dark and she says, you're not loving this story, are you? And he says, I actually find it comforting. 
Yeah, and there's a weird transition here to the next scene, and I can't tell if it's good directing or terrible directing. But by John T. Kretschmer, it's it pans over, and it like kind of wipes off the screen and wipes to behind a bookcase where it, I don't know it's it wipes from one scene to the other like a PowerPoint slide. <laughs> I didn't notice that, and, and I don't then, know if it was good or bad. <laughs> so we have uh, Willow in the computer lab researching the master and his minions as you're supposed to do in computer class. And she hears uh, Cordelia embellishing her encounter with Buffy. <laughs> uh, she says that she runs at her with a wood wooden stake, screaming, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> and uh, as she's telling the story, this insanely, this epitome of the 90s, <laughs> uh, this this kid with long skater hair pops in. Who are you talking about? And it's his. He steals the scene. His overacting, and his facial expressions, and just his his just the fact that he is exuding liquid nineties. <laughs> is like, just the liquid is what's greasing his hair. The two notes. My two takeaways from this scene are one. Uh, that computer science was way harder in the 90s than it is now. And two, that weird stoner over-actor took the scene. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, is insulting Buffy and, by extension, insults Willow. And she says, Buffy's not crazy. You don't even know her. And Cordelia <laughs> flubs a line, or charisma does, rather. When she says, do I horn in on your personal conversations? <laughs> well, maybe it was actually in the script like that. I don't know. <laughs> maybe it was like a slang for shoehorn. <laughs> and um, once again, great facial expressions <laughs> over Cordelia's shoulder from our skater friend. And, uh, and so then, uh, you know, finally the program is done. Uh, I also noticed how dumb Harmony is in this scene. Because... Cordelia's telling her story. He's like, I was at the, 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 you know, the cool place in Sunny... Or I don't remember. She's like, oh, were you at the bronze? She says, oh, and I was at the other cool place in Sunnydale. And you can see the gears turning in Harmony's head before it says, no, it was at the bronze. Which is great, great that uh, they introduced Harmony and that she does so well. Like, you know, that she's already kind of established as just a dumb sidekick. Yeah. And so uh, Willow is leaving after their, after Cordelia and Harmony's assignment is done. She's printing off her, her vamp research. and uh, Or as Harmony says, she's doing something else. Uh, <laughs> I like how she acted that. I don't think it was good acting. It was, it was fun it was, to watch. Yeah, I, liked, I like how she plays the character. And so then Cordelia asks, how do we save? Willow has this great line where she says, deliver. And so Cordelia looks around, sees the DEL key, and deletes her entire assignment from the system. Which is such a like smart line on Willow's part. Like the writer's part, it's I guess it's clever. But as the character, like her thinking that if I say deliver, she's gonna think of delete and she's gonna press it. Such a yeah. great like quick thinking on Willow's part. I feel like the entire fact that it was in computer science is because of that. You know, I feel like Joss was thinking, I don't know, something in his mind associated delete, like the D-E-L-Q with delivery. And he's like, I gotta write this joke into the episode. 
Yeah. It, there's no reason it's really in the computer science lab. Yeah, that, that makes scene sense. doesn't really have a reason to exist, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, I can see that. And then, so they find Jesse alive and unhurt in the uh, Buffy, rather Buffy and Willow, Buffy and Xander, not Willow, Cordelia, and Harmony. Uh, Buffy and Xander in the tunnels find Jesse alive and unhurt, just planking, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) He's just waiting there. He's like tired. He's lying down. They get there. He stands up and attempts to stake them. So maybe he was playing dead. (laughs) Or maybe he was passed out until they approached. I don't know. (laughs) But he's, yeah. And while they're freeing him, Xander says, it's cool, Buffy's a superhero. (laughs) Which is a line that I love. Uh, Um, That was strange, yeah. Then they're walking, or they they unchain him, because he's chained up. Uh, They're walking, and then they see more vampires, and there's another orchestra sting. Like, it's like a 50s horror movie. And they're being chased by vampires. I think at this point, Jesse reveals that he was intended to be bait. <laughs> yeah, he does. And they're like, oh, thanks for, thanks for letting us know. <laughs> and so he, uh, they, they, he's, he's like, I think I know the way out. They go to a dead end in the tunnel system. And they say, what do we do? And Jesse says, you can die. And it pans over, and he's got the bad vamp face with the bad prosthetic teeth. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of, I don't know. I don't know how I felt about that line. But human death it, count one for the episode. Yeah, because poor Jesse is dead. And that's also the reason that they didn't put him in the title credits, because not that it would be expensive to include him, but because it would be expensive to include him and then promptly remove him from the title credits. And uh, I really liked Xander's reaction. His, you know, I'm so sorry, man. You know, he seems genuinely just like he just got crushed. And Jesse's, why I'm alive. Lots of lots of s's. <laughs> I don't remember the line, but I remember there were lots of s's. Yeah, I do too. I I noted lots of s's in this line. Clearly had a lot of trouble. So that's unfortunate. And so here is where we. Uh, Kick off the little the segment of the scene that I like to call Buffy's off day. Uh, Buffy attempts to close this door, which is clearly made out of thin sheet metal, and can't do it. So, she, despite having superhuman strength, she needs Xander, the weak little skater kid, to help her close the door. After, of course, throwing Jesse out with the other vampires. Uh, then they're trying to hold it off as Buffy's attempting to pull a metal grate off of the roof and having a very difficult time doing that as well. As the Xanders are... The Z- <laughs> <laughs> The Xanders? The vampires, rather, <laughs> are peeling back this thin sheet metal door. Like paper. Yeah, like it's just... Like it's... Probably was paper. Yeah. And then they escape, and they're in the ventilation. And they're crawling, and then there are vampires crawling in the ventilation. This scene made me very claustrophobic. And they escape out of the sewer, and I noted, and this is something for another time, but I noted anyway, this set is identical, and possibly, I'd say probably, the same set as an iconic set from Dollhouse. I, you know... I didn't notice that until you just started mentioning it right now. You said, when as soon as you said this set, I'm like, Dollhouse. 
Yeah, this set is from Dollhouse. One other thing that I noticed is this set is on location, which means that Nicholas Brendan and Sarah Michelle Gellar just crawled out of a manhole. That's true. I didn't think of that. <laughs> That's That would smell awful. A vamp reaches after them, which sun hits them, and it starts to sizzle them, showing that vampires hate sunlight and in this Buffy, version of the lore. Buffy, of course, is having her off day, so she can't just kick off the vampire. Xander needs to pull her back and pull the vampire's hand into sunlight uh, because she is feeling very weak today. <laughs> um, and the vampire's hand slithers back into its cave. <laughs> and the master's not happy with all this down below. He says, and one thing that I noticed, he says that you are weak to the posse. But that's a reference to Animal House. One of his big lines from Animal House, National Lampoon's Animal House. Oh, wow. And that was a direct reference, according to the writers. But, and he, uh, he was, Master, of course, is not happy that they let them escape. Especially he's uh, unhappy with Colin, the vampire. Colin. <laughs> Colin. Big bad Colin. My notes here, Colin is not a badass name for a vampire. <laughs> but there's a creepy balding dude in the background of this scene. And I feel like he's not in vamp face. So I feel like like there was a, a key grip in the background. And he noticed they were filming, so he quickly tossed his equipment aside and stood there all eerie like he was supposed to be part of the scene. <laughs> but he's not even in vamp face. He's just an old dude. I don't understand. <laughs> Maybe he thought they would CG the vamp face on or they just thought nobody would notice. But I noticed. <laughs> so then uh, the master punishes Colin uh, by saying, you have something in your eye, and then pokes out his eye. <laughs> Dumb in theory, but it's cooler in execution. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's probably the only one of the only scenes involving the Master that made me somewhat entertained by his character. <laughs> and that's a vamp death count of two. Well, he's not necessarily dead. I'd say he's dead. He's just blinded by, this, blinded by science. I'm counting it as a dead. Okay. Yeah, I guess you never see him again. You don't see a one-eyed vamp stumbling around. So I'm going to say he's dead. Okay. And then this next scene, I have no idea what happens because I wrote library. Buffy with a question mark. <laughs> so back at the library, Willows and Jaws are researching and Willow finds evidence of the last time all this happened. Jaws has a really great line too. It's all coming together. I rather wish it weren't. Oh, I remember why I wrote that. Because Willow walks in the library, and Giles immediately turns around, Buffy? <laughs> Do, and like it makes me think, does nobody ever enter this library? That someone comes in and you immediately think it's Buffy? But, yeah, it's... They find evidence of this happening the last time, the last harvest. And we're back into the school, Luke's feeding on the master, to, which initially confused me. But then it's revealed that it's to become generic word the vessel where He's everyone Luke into he the vessel. On. Yeah, I just wrote not a fan. <laughs> and everyone he feeds on will now feed the master, which it's mystical. It's not science, okay? I can't explain how their stomachs must be connected. <laughs> it's you know I can't even imagine. Like it's when it hits his esophagus, does it teleport to, or is it just the energy? I don't know. I don't. I don't want to think about it too hard. I don't know. Maybe he just he feels like he's being energized. 
an example, an unrelated example, is uh, Game of Thrones when Bran is warging as his direwolf. When he eats his summer, he feels like he's being nourished, but he's not actually getting any sustenance. Maybe it's like that, and the master just feels stronger. And that's in the books of Game of Thrones, by the way, not the show. But yeah, um, I can see it. Maybe it's like a placebo. <laughs> yeah, he's just like, I think he's feeding now. No, no, now he's definitely feeding, and Luke hasn't even left the tunnels yet. And one thing I noted, that Darla seems really, really happy for Luke in this scene, which seems to go very against her character. I thought she'd be upset that she's not the vessel. Yeah, she is a master fangirl, which is very strange, because the more you learn about her character, the less likely that seems... <laughs> But yeah, I wrote here, Vessel, Harvest, Master are all awful. Those are just like the, the Master, the Harvest, the Vessel. Really? So, uh, back in the library, um, <laughs> I, Giles is explaining what he and Willow have discovered, but I love Xander's line, I don't like vampires, I'm going to take a stand and say they're not good. <laughs> And that's because they just broke the news that Jesse had been turned. And I noted that this is something that is very common throughout the series. Xander doesn't cry. He breaks things. And that's something that's very common throughout the entire series is that he's... And maybe it's because Nicholas Brendan can't cry on cue. Or maybe well, actually, it's I've the seen, character. I have seen... other. I mean, granted, it was a later show. But I have seen a show where his character did cry. So I think it's, you know, a dramatic decision that the character feels personally that he's too tough to cry or maybe he just physically can't and he takes out his frustrations in other ways yeah he's he's very uh he doesn't yeah he doesn't ever cry he he expresses himself more violently which when and, you word it like that it sounds bad but Xander's a good guy <laughs> <laughs> so uh Giles explained what he and Willow have discovered it's it's all it's, it's Buffy's first apocalypse yeah, and, we're in apocalypse count one I don't know if we're <laughs> going to keep track of them but I made note of that <laughs> and so an ancient master, ancient vampire, the master, arrived in Sunnydale with his minions 60 years ago. He tried to open the Hellmouth, which is below Sunnydale, and you, as described in the scene, it's it's a portal that kind of between hell and earth, or rather a demonic, you know, demonic dimension. And they tried to open it and allow demons to invade but he was he was swallowed by an earthquake <laughs> right and he's now trapped in a church that was buried underground okay so that was canon that wasn't a theory yeah i suppose uh well i i think I like we took to, liberties. i like to take credit for it <laughs> <laughs> um but i noticed that this episode's almost exclusively cut back and forth between the library and the master's cave like a few other I, locations yeah. peppered in but mostly those two yes yeah and uh, so tonight is the once-in-a-century opportunity of the harvest, which he will, uh, the master, will choose one of his flunkies to drink his blood and mark him with a symbol that he definitely didn't mark on his forehead. I think, I think he might have, but he marked a triangle on his forehead. This thing was more like a... Triforce? No, the symbol was almost like helicopter blade except there's only three prongs like it was two wings on the side and one on the top he drew he drew it poorly it was 
It was like a circle with a sausage coming up, sausage coming bottom right, sausage coming bottom left. And I would have asked for retakes, damn. Like, that was... He scribbled it. It was like, He wasn't even looking. Especially just, since the symbol itself on Luke's forehead is just a triangle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but they decide to go to the bronze, but Buffy decides to head home first, and her mom, being worried old Joyce, forbids her from going. And there's so, a great uh, line there, too. I know if you don't go, it'll be the end of the world, but little does she know. Yeah. And so you know, Xander, of course, suggests they go to the bronze because that's where he knows Jesse will be, and it's basically the perfect Petri dish for vampire activity. And so Buffy goes home, of course, uh, picks up some additional weapons. And <laughs> so, um, yeah, and of course, Joy shows up. She's received a call from Principal Flutie and promptly grounds her because she doesn't want her to get expelled again. Right. And so her slang trunk is, it's like a trunk filled with childhood memories, but she takes out the top compartment and there's her slang gear underneath. Which is, uh, I think... I think you had mentioned you took an inventory, but there are some interesting things in there. Let's take inventory. We got three stakes. Two uh, normal wood ones, one triangular, three liter bottles of holy water, little tiny ones, one very large bottle. And I didn't mean to say liter, I meant to say little, I can't read my writing. Six cloves of garlic, one rosary, one cross, and the kicker, one large, like huge jar of communion wafers. Yeah, it's like an old pickle jar filled to the brim with communion wafers. How would she use that? Did she force feed vampires the communion wafers? Never in any lore have I ever heard vampires having an aversion to communion wafers. (laughs) It's beautiful. And she sneaks two snakes. Steaks, not snakes. Is this bread unleavened? (laughs) No! She sneaks two steaks into her duffel bag, which she also has. She has a duffel bag. And one into her sleeve. The special triangle one, so I don't know if there's something special about it. But she sneaks some more stuff into her duffel bag, but where does she think she's going to have time to bring and open a duffel bag? Like, what does she think is going to go down? She's going to bring it on her back and just zip it open in the middle of the fight? Later in the fight, Willow has a jar of holy water. So I think maybe she's like, hey, Willow Xander, stock up. (laughs) Maybe, but I noticed before she leaves her house... She forgets to put the compartment back of her childhood <laughs> stuff. Her childhood stuff. <laughs> and That's suspicious. I, like, that's not a good thing to forget, Buffy. And so, um... I don't know what I wrote here. I wrote Senior Boys, Mystery Cars, Motormouth. That's okay. exactly what Cordelia's talking about. She's, I She's th- talking about, yes... <laughs> how she prefers senior boys over the boys in their grade because they have mystery. What's the word? Cars. And then someone says, I think, and she says, hey, motormouth, can I get a word in here? And Charisma does a fantastic job of just acting so smoothly as the popular girl. Like, she's really comfortable in that role already and just does a great job. Very, and I hate to use this word, but it just fits her so perfectly. She's so charismatic. Bad. That's my line. And... She just she's really comfortable as the bad girl, or like so the then, wannabe bad girl. So Sprung Monkey starts playing, of course, because there is one band in all of Sunnydale, 
Uh, they're not live this time. They were recording. But Cordelia loves this song because there is one band in Sunnydale. <laughs> Probably one song. And so that is actually a song that they played in episode one. So she uh, she goes and starts dancing. Jesse is on the prowl, comes up, and she starts rebuffing him. And then he just starts asking, acting like a total asshole. He's... And she's instantly okay with this. She just like, oh, treat me poorly. Yes, please, Jesse. <laughs> yeah, he's assertive and she's totally into it. And that's uh, feels like a stereotype. <laughs> yeah, and there's a really cool shot after this of Darla leading a group of vampires to the bronze while the bouncer counts money. I didn't write it down, but I did notice that the bouncer looks kind of like Jordan Peele. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. It's, it's definitely not him, but he kind of looked like him. And one thing that I thought was funny is he asked Luke for ID. Yeah. This is an all-ages club. Why would you ask a like seven-foot-tall giant for ID? And the funny thing is, they all have their band faces on. He doesn't seem to care at this point. And so, vamps swarm the blondes, the bronze, and they shut off all the power. And Luke jumps on the stage. And one thing that I noticed... Well, first off, the, they shut off the power. They didn't shut off the stage lights. They shut off the power. But then the, the lights come on on the stage. And I don't know if that's just a backup generator or what. But while Luke is talking, I noted there's a really bizarre and out-of-place stock scream. Just in the middle of like a, his sentence. And I, if it wasn't a stock, then that extra, they screwed Drop up. the ball. But it was just weird. Like, he's been talking for like two minutes and just, ah. Uh, it made no sense. Uh, he That scene... He's just preaching on stage. It didn't particularly entertain me. No. And then the bouncer says, Hey, you guys, you guys' faces aren't right. Which, man, you should have noticed this a couple of minutes ago when you talked to them. <laughs> but Luke feeds on him, which is a human death count of two. And then he talks way too much every time before he feeds. And it makes me uncomfortable. And especially... What? No volunteers? The line, fear is like an elixir, makes me extremely uncomfortable for whatever I, reason. I hate Luke. I hate Luke so much. And that is probably the the apex. <laughs> when he's like, your fear is like an elixir. And, oh God. <laughs> that's, that's bad writing. And this is one of my favorite... I, we have a podcast dedicated to this man's writing, and that is bad writing. <laughs> But as Luke feeds, the master grows, not physically, like placebo-esque. And Buffy and the gang can't seem to get into the bronze so that they can tell what's going on in there. And Buffy gives a battle strategy. She tells him not to go wild bunch on them, on her, which is a western where everybody dies, if you didn't know. <laughs> I didn't, actually. And uh, Giles reminds Xander before they all split up that Jesse is not Jesse anymore. And yeah, he, you're not looking at Jesse. You're looking at the thing that killed him. And we see, which Luke, is not strictly true. I mean, if you're going like deep into the weird vampire lore, yes. But more accurately, you're looking at no it because Darla killed him. <laughs> yeah, um, and we see Luke feeding on another victim, random girl at the bronze. So that's human death count of three. And the master's still growing stronger. 
But one thing that I noted really strange is he's yelling. Yelling to yeah. himself, alone in the cathedral. Yes! More! And it, 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 it's weird. Like he really wants Luke to hear him. <laughs> but I'm like, I don't think he can. Maybe he can. We don't know that. We, if he can, we don't know it. But it made me... It, made, it felt weird. It felt out of place. Um, so... Buffy notices the triangle that is not the vessel mark on Luke's forehead. She takes out the vamp with the stage light. The vamp holding the stage light. She doesn't use a stage light as a weapon, as cool as that would be. Yeah, I don't think he dies. No. She throws him off the balcony, if I remember correctly. Right, and then... She jumps down as well I also onto the pool table. Right, and I noticed when she's backstage going up to the balcony, there's a really bizarre lamp in the background. Just check it out. But yeah, she jumps up on there, and Luke sees her up there, and they have a conversation, and he spits so much exposition, it makes me feel weird. It just... <laughs> everything he says makes me feel dirty. <laughs> Luke makes me uncomfortable. But yeah, Buffy throws the vamp down, interrupts as he's about as Luke is about to eat Cordy, and then... Does the handspring from the pilot <laughs> to get down from the balcony. Now, she could have done a flip, but instead she turned around and did, like, a back handspring when she it's could cooler. have just done a front flip. Like, why? That was unnecessary. That... <laughs> but one thing that I thought was cool, she did a cartwheel over the pool table, as you said, and as she's doing it, she grabs a cue in the process, which is pretty... I never tried to do that. Maybe it's easy, but it looked pretty cool. And then she uses the pool cue... Yeah, and without missing a beat, uh, she stakes a vamp off stage, which is a <laughs> vamp death count of three. Which is a kind of cheesy sight gag. <laughs> yeah, she sticks the pool cue in him. A pool, she lets go. Pool cue stays there and then falls back because apparently he didn't dust until he. I don't know. He took a while to dust. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I liked it though. I thought it looked cool. Kind of cheesy, then, but cool. Um. I wrote here, symbol decap. So, <laughs> Vampire is trying to bite Xander. Buffy grabs a symbol from a drum set. And it says, heads up. <laughs> <laughs> no. She throws the symbol, decapitates the vampire, and Xander, after the vampire is decapitated, says, heads up. Which That's is ridiculous. Vamp death count to four. So we're at three humans, four vamps. So finally the vamps have outdied the humans. <laughs> And uh, so, Luke grabs Darla, Buffy after this, I believe. Actually, first, I believe Darla knocks Giles to the ground. Um, <laughs> in the first of Giles' long history of head injuries. And yeah. she's about to bite him, but Willow splashes Darla with holy water on her face. She screams and runs out of the room. And, and the scream sounds fake and doesn't sound like it's coming from her. And the whole effect is kind of cheesy. <laughs> and I thought that too. I made note that it might be a stock screen, but when I went back and listened to it... It's I, Julie Benz. It's Julie Benz. It definitely is. But I don't feel like it was recorded live. No. But, um, yeah, Jesse's trying to eat Cordelia. Darla's trying to eat Giles. Luke's trying to eat Buffy in this scene. It's good pacing, but if you break it down like that, it seems kind of easy. <laughs> so then Xander, uh, he confronts Jesse... Uh, again, with 
a stake that he's going to kill him with, but he hesitates. I never, in the scene, ever think that he's actually going to stake him. I don't think if he had the chance, he would. No. Well, as evidence, he has the chance and he doesn't. But then a... He, he's basically saying, you don't have the balls. A woman flees, bumps Jesse into the stake, and dusts him. Which I felt really bad, and I want to discuss that. How, you know, how bad would you feel if you were Xander in that situation? You know, you weren't going to do it. You were bluffing, but then you do it. I have an answer for that. I would feel so bad that I would repress it for the entire series and never mention it ever again. <laughs> But, uh, so Jesse, that is a death count, vampire death count of five, making Jesse the only character to die twice in an episode. <laughs> and we cut back to Luke. Buffy's aiming a mic stand at him. She broke free and is aiming a mic stand at him, and he's like, metal can't hurt me. <laughs> like, she doesn't know. Yeah, as if she wasn't sure. But she throws the metal mic stand through the window and says, sunrise, which fools Luke because it's not daytime we saw really bad stock footage earlier of a sun setting so vamp and vampires obviously went there when it was nighttime because they came from the outside but for a second he freaks out thinking he's burning and i just luke is an idiot that is the yeah the stupidest thing i don't know why it worked he's like no he's like covering his face i'm melting but it's been less than an it's been, what, 15 minutes since you got there at midnight? <laughs> so, Buffy stakes Luke from the be- behind, which is a vamp death count of six, and our last and, vamp death of the episode. And she also says, I think, she, I can't remember, is it about six hours, moron? Yeah. And he has a really bad slow-mo death and really bad dusting effects. <laughs> and then the master uh, instantly notices and starts screaming, No! No, which Buffy seems to hear. Yeah. So maybe he does have just a really loud voice. <laughs> but there's a really cool shot here of Buffy. It's the one that's used in the end of the theme where it kind of pans down. And we yeah. see a good shot of her holding a weapon and all the vamps run. And Angel's here for some reason. Apparently has been the whole time. And he's proud of Buffy. Yeah, he's just watching there. Uh, impressed. Because she destroyed the vessel. And back at school, they're discussing how they averted the apocalypse. Cordelia is discussing with a Cordette how she doesn't remember anything. And they joke about how nobody remembered anything from that night somehow. Seriously. And Cordelia mentions their faces. She thinks they're from some gang and they had freaky faces. And, and yeah, they joke about being excited for the next apocalypse. Giles has an iconic line that will stick in your mind. It should. The Earth is doomed. Yeah, they're talking about all the battles that lie ahead. And, uh... Teenage stuff. Giles warns them that, you know, the Hellmouth is practically a magnet (laughs) for demons. So there's going to be millions of battles lying ahead. And they're like, you know, that sounds a good idea. And they're like, that sounds fun. And... While it does sound fun to watch, I don't think I would be having fun in that situation. It's like, oh yeah, because I befriended the new girl, my life is never the same again. I can't just, you know, have a normal day. I gotta kill supernatural beings. I gotta murder for the rest of my life. (laughs) But they are, they accept it so nonchalantly, much more nonchalantly than Giles would like. (laughs) And 
The Earth is doomed. He just he says the great line, the Earth is doomed, and then the episode ends. Now, when I first watched season one, I didn't enjoy it. I could, I, and as I told in my opening statement of the first episode, I couldn't get through it the first time I watched it. But now on my second watch through, I feel I'm getting really nostalgic. Or not even my second, my far more than that. I feel like I'm getting more nostalgic and I feel like I'm giving it almost biased higher ratings due to these nostalgic feelings and knowing what the series becomes. And I, I don't think that's fair. But if my rating, if I talk about not liking the episode and then the rating is higher than you feel it should be, that's, that's my reason. <laughs> I uh, also, I mean, both of us kind of watched the series initially against our will uh and so i didn't particularly enjoy the first season the first time i watched it if i'm being perfectly honest i don't particularly enjoy it too much now uh as a whole it's an all right season but it's nothing compared to what the series will become uh it has a lot of great moments and a lot probably more not so great moments yeah Uh, but but, Mr. Universe, what would you rate Episode 2, The Harvest? Uh, seeing as an extension from the first episode, I stuck with my 3 out of 5 stakes. See, I thought this uh, episode in particular was a bit weaker than the first episode. I thought it didn't quite sell it as much, so I gave mine 2, two stakes out of 5 stakes. That's fair. And that rounds us out to 2.5 out of 5 stakes for episode 2. Slightly less than episode 1. Whedonverse podcast rating, 2.5 out of 5 stakes. Join us next episode where we'll discuss Buffy the Vampire Slayer Season 1, Episode 3, Witch, and Episode 4, Teacher's Pet. Wait until next week? In the meantime, check out Long Box of Doom, a podcast about comics, on hhwlod.com. All programs, productions, characters, music, and stories discussed in this nonprofit podcast belong to Joss Whedon and or their respective networks. All music, clips, and discussion used is either original, royalty-free, or released under Creative Commons designation CCBYNCSA. For more information, visit creativecommons.org. Thanks for listening.